0: everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. I appreciate you guys being here. It is really a pleasure to do this pod. I get to interview really interesting people at my leisure, and uh, I appreciate the people that support us so I can do that, and I hope you'll show them a little love as well so we can keep doing this thing. It's really uh, kind of fun. And, I, and if you, as I've said repeatedly, if you have suggestions, people you'd like to hear me interview, Head on over to contact at drdrew.com and uh, just send it there. Susan, my wife, checks those on a regular basis. And if it's somebody we can get in here, we will do so. Uh, don't forget, speaking of uh, her thing over there at contact, she does that Ask Dr. Drew show Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at 3 o'clock. She produces that. That's her baby. And uh, we have a lot of fun. Well, fun. Uh, it, we've been interviewing people. It, it's a little higher wire act. Uh, where we're interviewing people that have been canceled. And uh, I will tell you that from every single one of them, I've learned something. Don't always agree with everything, but, you know, keep the conversation going is, is my is my motto. Today is no exception to that motto. Cheryl Racinos, a mom of three, physician, author. She grew up in a difficult family setting and published a memoir of these experiences. Uh, the Resilience Group, uh, Cheryl hopes to help children who've experienced childhood trauma, which is... A, as I've said many times, I believe been through been through that is the pandemic that we've been through in the last 30, 40 years and find the path to healing and resilience. Uh, let's see, uh, found, uh, let's see, who is Caitlin? Wait a minute. I'm going to get to that in a second. But uh, again, uh, Cheryl is a mom, writer, author, physician, community volunteer, founder of the Impact Scholarship at my friend's place, a program for homeless youth in Hollywood. We will talk about that as well. So, Cheryl, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, did I screw something up here? Caitlin, it, suddenly it switches to Caitlin. Is that somebody that you know, or they, do they mean Cheryl when they said that?
1: Um, they they might have been referring to the initial artist for the covers for the Resilience Group. Book. Uh, okay, that's what that about. is. Okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about uh, the Resilience Group and what you hope to do and, you know, what the path to recovery are like. and What kind of medicine do you practice, by the way?
1: Okay, so um, that's a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, I'm a family medicine trained uh, physician, but I work as a hospitalist. Um, lately, I usually work as a nocturnist, meaning I work nights in hospitals, um, but locums, so I travel. Um, so I'm usually like in, in Central or Northern California, I'm based out of Los Angeles. Um, for the books, um, there were two. The memoir is Hindsight, Coming of Age on the Streets of Hollywood. That's the one that tells the story of my upbringing and, and survival on the streets of LA as a teenager. And then the Resilience Group is a series that I had started um, before the pandemic, um, but I haven't continued since then. I need to pick up where I left off. That's a story about um, young people in middle school who are going through trauma and they have a counselor who is really invested in helping them deal with their trauma.
0: And yourself, how did you come to understand what, you know, it's as as usual, and I, you know, I'm not telling you something you don't know, but I will say it for the purpose of the audience, the the way trauma affects the brain is it gets walled off. It's like that's out there in the distance somewhere. And I dealt with it and I dealt with it means I don't think about it anymore, even though it is there having its way with the trauma survivor. They just don't know it. How did you come to uh, awareness about what, what you were walking around with?
1: Um, my awareness began when I was actually in medical school. Um, mm-hmm. I was a leader student. I started medical school at 31 with three kids and I had gotten through an entire previous career as a high school teacher without realizing I was traumatized.
0: And, I, I, want, I want to stop you right there. How <laughs> just that part of your journey, and and of course, you know, trauma survivors often sometime they, they kind of go one way or the other, they go become perfectionistic and high achievers or they go the other way. And uh, clearly you were the the perfect version, but I, I want to hear more about, you know, come on. I want to hear more about how that happened. Cause that, that. You know, I, have been talking to a lot of young people lately and young people kind of wait, they're waiting to sort of put their bet down on a lot of things and to go to medical school in your late twenties, early thirties seems at one time, and you know, back when I was young, seemed like unthinkable. Like, how could you do that? We're only going to, you are going to live to 60 anyway, but, but how could you do that? But how did you, how did you just pull that off? Tell me about that little piece and then we'll go back to the drama.
1: Okay. So, so that was kind of amazing. I was teaching high school and I had finished um, a master's in education and I was looking to see what was next. And I enrolled in a program to get an administrative credential so I could become a principal. And one of my very close friends who was a teacher kind of scolded me and, and told me, you know, what are you doing? You hate being a teacher. You hate this. You want wow. to be a doctor. Wow. And she made me promise that I would give it a try. And, and I told her some of my truths right then. I told her, you know, I don't think I deserve to be a doctor. I, I kind of blamed myself for a lot of things that had happened as a teenager and I hadn't really processed it yet. Mm. And she made me promise I would try. And so I started thinking about it and, and I realized, you know, I really still wanted that dream and I went after it and I started taking, you know, night classes to, to finish my science prereqs and volunteering at two hospitals. And, you know, I got involved in a research project at the university next to where I was teaching and, you, you know, married, went and you another.
0: A, a supportive spouse at that time,
1: married, um, Somehow he stayed with me for all of this. It's amazing. Yeah, you know what?
0: It's so funny. Uh, those of us that are physicians with those words come out of our mouth a lot. Like, I don't know how I was put up with that because you're, you're during your training, certainly and I, for myself, for at least 15 years afterwards, you're just not home. You're just, you're just in the hospital, it's just where you are. And uh, yeah. So congratulations. That's nice. Just stay with oh, that guy. You. Stick with that one. And let, let's go back to the trauma. So you're in medical school and you you started thinking about it or maybe you studied it in some sort of you know something. What happened?
1: You know, there were little hints at first, like as a first year medical student, we had a behavioral science lecture mm. and they were talking about like teen pregnancy rates in like normal kids versus kids who are in the foster care system. And not only did I take offense to the term normal kids for the kids that were non-foster care, but mm. I felt like there was a light bulb shining on me in the class. And everybody must have been looking at me like, oh, well, that explains why you have so many older kids. You know, my my oldest was 12 at the time. And so it wouldn't have done much. It wouldn't have been hard for someone in the class to figure out that I was a teen mom. But I saw myself as a statistic on the screen. And, you know, I was in shock during that entire class period. And at the end, nobody else had had that moment I'd had. And, you know, talking through it with some of my peers, they didn't even care. They just moved right past the slide. But for me, it was eye-opening. That
0: right, it was just like looking at a, <laughs> a, another, you know, another, another uh, tumor under the microscope. Just keep going, exactly. keep, keep moving here.
1: <laughs> exactly. And so, so that was one of the first moments, and I started to notice, you know, just how much my my husband and my kids and I were all struggling because we were in the Caribbean at a school far away from home, with you know no support, not a lot of money, what? and you know really struggling. <laughs> And we didn't have like family support. Mm. But as I went through rotations, that's when it kind of solidified. I had um, an attending when I did my pediatrics rotation. And we were in the very first day of the rotation. After two hours, he pulled me into his office and he said, you know, you grew up rough. <laughs> and I was like, but what does my tell? Everyone keeps telling me they know that about me. But how mm. do you know? Mm. How did you figure it out? And he told me it was that I didn't react. I didn't react when the kids said things like they use drugs or, or they were struggling, they were missing school. Mm -hmm. I just continued talking to them. Like they were regular kids and asking them what their plan was, how they were going to finish high school, what they wanted to do with their lives. And, and that was apparently what showed him that I was different.
0: Yeah. I started numbing, numbing, dissociating all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Did you know you were dissociating?
1: Not necessarily dissociating, but I was kind of just, um, I was just numb. Well, I guess I was just focusing on survival. You know, it's, that, it's hard that's to That's what
0: the dissociative mechanism I know, is. But it's I but I that in my
1: mind. <laughs>
0: it's an adaptive thing that lets you survive. Truly. Okay. But I understand you're also in medical school trying to survive. And you have kids and you're trying to survive. So you had like three survival <laughs> things going on simultaneously. Wow. Wild. It was hard. You're having a reaction just thinking about it, right?
1: <laughs> I was just remembering some of it. But- yeah you know, it wasn't enough to really wake me up and and help me realize how significant it was or that I needed to start healing until later on, like residency kind of solidified that I needed to start healing.
0: Let me ask you about mental health and medical students. Did you have adequate resources available where you felt you could reach out or was the sort of, uh, you know, the mm, prevailing culture sort of, you know, just suck it up, get it on, be tough, work more hours, keep you away or were they encouraging you to go out and take care of your mental health?
1: I mean, it's, it was kind of a gray area because I was at a Caribbean medical school. And so we didn't have our own university hospital after Uh. we started clinicals. Uh. So while we were in the first two semesters back on the Island, we did have support and we had professors we could reach Mm. out to, or, you know, like I I went one time to a behavioral science for like a therapy session and Mm. had my first panic attack in his office. And we realized that wasn't a good means of therapy for me. So I didn't go back.
0: What, um, what, was, what was it they were applying there?
1: Um, he had me close my eyes and focus on my heart and really just, you know, listen to the heartbeat. And I went into a panic attack and he's like, never again. Don't
2: uh, do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That didn't work.
0: That's a, that's one of the, um, the harsh realities of uh, mindfulness therapies. About 20% of people get worse with mindfulness. It's not for everybody. And in my experience, Personally, <laughs> frankly, as people that are prone to panic, that that's the group that kind of. Mm, I'm not sure this is a good thing. I mean, if they like it, great. You can try it, but it, it is not a universal. Just meditate. Just good for everybody. Yes, but no. It's like you got to find the right. You know, it's everything in medicine, right? You have the right diagnosis, the right treatment.
2: It's mm-hmm. Everything.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. How long have you been a physician now? Um,
1: I graduated in
0: 2014, so nine years. Yeah, and, and you graduated from medical school, and then you did a family practice residency, right? Yes,
1: so I finished
0: yeah. in 2017. Yeah, so so you're just uh, getting in the in the midst of it, in the early part of the career, kind of thing. And it's it's when people work long hours. I'll tell you what, it's when you, when you get going, uh, and when you really start seeing stuff too. My God, uh, I saw so much in the first ten years; it just was r- ridiculous. So you're now, you know, you're kind of in this sort of contemplative zone with what's going on with you. When do you get more serious about it? And what do you do?
1: When I finished residency, five days after I graduated, my oldest brother died by suicide.
0: Jeez. Mm, was he in the midst of all whatever it was happening to you in the childhood too?
1: I mean, up until that moment, I had thought it was just me. Yeah. I I was blamed for things here yeah. and there by different family members. And so... I had internalized a lot of what had happened, but that was kind of my waking up moment where I realized that the childhood trauma had affected all of us.
0: Oh, of course. Was there addiction in the family or some somebody using?
1: No, it? there there was mental illness on my mom's yeah, side, and, yeah, and yeah. my father was a narcissist.
0: Oh yeah, boy. Oof. Yeah, but, do it. You know. <laughs> it, and, you
1: know, it was I, definitely. I, I know, a, it was, you know
0: you you don't really have this perspective um, in your training and, and practice, but the narcissistic stuff has it came along in the eighties and nineties. That was not there was actually debate in the 70s well actually maybe before the 70s whether narcissism existed as a real category and uh there's no debate about that now <laughs> we're, we're with it and it's all around us uh if you're lucky you didn't pick a narcissistic you know partner spouse because that's yeah, kind of how the pattern works right you know
1: yeah he's pretty great thankfully
0: yeah yeah uh, all right. So again, so you what you, what is it you do? When do you finally capitulate?
1: So, you know, it wasn't right at that moment, but I started the healing process. I started, you know, really reaching out to my peers. Um, I got involved with a group of female physicians who, you know, grew up in traumatic um, families like mine, with either like personality personality disordered parents or mentally ill parents, and like, addicts.
0: Became... The addicts. The other category. Very common. <laughs> Exactly.
1: And I ended up becoming a moderator of that group over the over time as, you know, time passed on. Mm -hmm. And I I just really focused on learning, you know, reading and studying and, you know, doing everything I could apart from therapy because I had some really bad therapy experiences as a teen and I didn't feel like that was a safe place for me to get healing. Mm -hmm. And and then I found that, you know, writing made a huge difference.
0: Shopify is the commercial platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're IPO ready or in a garage still, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. They put you in control of every sales channel. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn potential clients from browsers to buyers. Of course, I've been talking about Shopify for some time. They've been great. It powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force. Award-winning help there to support your success every step of the way. And this is possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash drew, D-R-E-W, all lowercase. Go to Shopify, S-H-O-P-I-F-Y. Go to shopify.com slash drew to take your business to the next level today. One more time, that is shopify.com slash drew. So really the, the task of uh, trauma survivors is to reintegrate, to get back in your body, to uh, wire into those regions of the brain that have been walled off, uh, tolerate you know, you know, in a dose wise fashion, increasing levels of exposure to some of that stuff. Like you said, you had this massive exposure to your body with a mindfulness experience and too much too soon. No good. Uh, It it has to be in extremely skilled hands. In my experience, however, did you find that person?
1: I I found... I didn't find like a person or, or like a therapist. I, I still don't feel like that would be the right path for me, just given some of my early childhood trauma. Um, but I found. I'm, I'm going to interrupt go. you.
0: I've never seen a trauma survivor for whom there wasn't an interpersonal solution. I've never seen it. I, I would urge you to check out Alan Shore and Peter Fonagy, uh, Dan Stern, these are the interpersonal neurobiologists, particularly Shore. He's got uh, some stuff on the Internet. It's just uh, right the use of the – it's like right brain, right brain uh, communication between mother and infant and in therapy or something. He has three giant books out that are sort of the, the uh, encyclopedias of interpersonal neurobiology. And it's a pretty well – Worked out field, I, although it's not taught in medical school. I've gone in and lectured on it a few times. Actually, another guy named uh, Stephen Porges actually has mapped P R G E S has actually mapped out the the actual mechanisms of the neurobiology. You know, what are the what are the um, expressive and um, what's the word I'm what's the word I'm looking for the, the expression of a genotype? What, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you're a recent student. Phenotypic, the phenotypic expression and the expressive uh, mechanisms for how the ne- interpersonal neurobiology is actually played out through embedding of the vagus nerd in the branchial pouches, uh, and he actually takes it through the you know the evolutionary uh, process, and it's just there it is. It's all there, you know how these mechanisms work, um, but they're hidden from us because they are so you know deeply in our subconscious and whatnot or in our biology, even I I think subconscious is almost too brain of a word, you know, it's just in our body brain biologies and, um, and they are what become obfuscated uh, in trauma because the child learns that they, like you've learned, you can't go into that space anymore. Uh, But you have to deploy that mechanism at some time to fully actualize those parts of yourself that still want some attention. Let's say that's sort of how it is. I don't know. You know, it, it sounds like you're doing great. I, I'm not being critical at all. Please don't express that. I'm just, I'm, I'm just going through this thought process for those listening that may have trauma survivorship and whatnot. Cause I, 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 myself a trauma survivor. I was the object of uh, that, that mechanism. And it's very powerful when you get into it. Uh, EMDR and those sorts of um, tools are ways of uh, getting at that stuff. I think bad for you, not good for you. <laughs> it would overwhelm you completely. Um, but just that slow rebuilding of comfort and in the intersubjective experience is really the deal it's so, for so many traumas. survivors, certainly it was for me. And uh, when you're the object of that kind of mm, focus, um, boy, it makes you more effective with other people who've had that experience. And so myself uh, you know, working with drug addicts, you know, I, I had a, ran an inpatient drug program in a psychiatric hospital. So we had the very, very, very sick, sickest, sickest, sickest. And therefore everybody had childhood trauma, everybody, 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 it's just the way it is. And, uh, and it made me much more effective with those guys. So that's just, I, I'm, I really, I'm not saying this for you. I'm sorry. I, I know that was a little bit of a rant. I'm saying that just cause it's a topic I have great mm, attachment to and, just we're talking about it, and, and and by the way, in my podcast, if you reach back, God, Alan, I don't know if we can find these, but I interviewed Stephen Porges a couple times. I interview Alan Shore. Uh, I interview Sue Johnson, I think her name is, who is one of the founders of emotionally focused therapy, which is another way at this material. And frankly, I think Dr. Sinos, that would be a good one for you. It's a very gentle, slow, you know, kind of approach. Um, and uh, and back to uh the so the sues of the world so to speak interestingly uh sue carter who's the head of the kinsey institute who's the woman that did all the research on prairie voles and oxytocin and attachment is stephen porges wife so it's a very interesting little world they all live in so so i'm sorry that was a that was a, a complete sidebar i interrupted your, your your story. I, I feel a certain amount of guilt for doing so, but I, I apologize. Uh, tell me then how you got to wanting to be of service and help to others and what you're doing there.
1: Absolutely. So I started writing and then, you know, it didn't really take any shape or form until after my mother had passed in 2018. And I'd always told myself I would write the book when, when she passed because I, I didn't hold any you know blame towards her her mental illness was very profound and mm-hmm. i didn't feel like she intentionally caused harm but she did cause harm to me and my siblings and did you, did I mean, just
0: sorry, you don't have to tell us these details if you don't want but did she have a thought disorder or was she also um, personality disorder or both Or
1: she was pre- predominantly diagnosed with bipolar but as uh-huh. she got later in life you know the psychiatrist always had a different diagnosis for her and so sometimes it was schizophrenia sometimes you know something similar they they changed it over the years and then
0: you know what that that again i worked yeah. on psychiatry for a long time Th- those are often borderlines or schizoaffectives mm-hmm. that that yeah. uh, they just sort of don't don't say it <laughs>
1: yeah it was it was complex but yeah. she spent the last 3 years of her life in a like a lockdown jerry psych unit
0: oh it
2: was,
1: it was just very sad and knowing that when when she finally passed I realized it was time for me to share the story because at that point I'd had about seven or eight months to really start the healing process after losing my brother and I was, I was starting to come to terms with what that meant for me moving forward
2: mm. Mm.
1: and I, I had this strong push that you know I had to do something or say something while I'm still here yeah. because it was time to tell the story and try to help others like you know if you've seen Los Angeles we've We've gotten so out of hand with the number of people who are unhoused, who have nowhere to stay. And it just exploded while I was going in medical school and training. Mm -hmm. And coming back to that, it broke my heart. So I had to start speaking out.
0: Mm. You know, what's interesting about that population, uh, essentially zero physicians involved in their care, zero. The county won't allow it. The state won't allow it. Think about that. Think about how pathetic that is. There's one team the USC has out there. It's really sort of a medical team. They're trying to manage on the street, the medical stuff and doing some substance intervention. But essentially, in terms of the infrastructure of homelessness in Los Angeles, zero doctors involved. Can you imagine that?
1: It's, it's heartbreaking.
0: It's, it's pathetic. It's pathetic. We, we, I'm glad you're in there because we have to do something. So what did you do exactly?
1: Um, so first, I, I realized I needed to tell my story because, you know, as someone who had been volunteering for years, I've been going back to my friend's place and volunteering and speaking at galas and talking to donors. Um, i had a lot of people ask me about the time that I was on the streets because I was very um, open with the fact that I was an alumni from the program. Mm. And I realized not even some of the staff members, including the program director, knew my story. Mm. I'd been very quiet about what had happened to me all those years ago. And so I sat down and finally wrote it. It, it was and then like it was wild it took four months to write that book it mm. just poured out of me when i finally sat down and started writing it and it's a huge book it's almost 400 pages wow i had a lot to say
0: and it's it's like can we get it at amazon it's out there
1: yes it's on amazon um and the name um it's hindsight coming of age on the streets of hollywood
2: mm.
0: congratulations it, amazing, amazing.
1: It was a game changer for me because it let me finally tell my story and be authentically me and explain why I had the interactions I was still having with patients where they they felt like they could trust me because they sensed that I was different. Mm-hmm. And it explained why I advocated so much for my patients to my peers that were working with me. And you know, even in the work setting, people changed the way they spoke around me, like doctors who used to say like negative things about people experiencing homelessness. Mm now started to come to me and ask for advice like hey is this a safe discharge plan what do you think about this and you know that was beautiful but that was you know just the beginning I I started to give talks to you know medical programs medical schools um, different residency groups about you know taking care of patients experiencing homelessness or trauma-informed care and different things that would help them in expanding their reach and making changes and so that's just the beginning
0: yeah and you know oftentimes when people make a major turnaround like you did th- there's often one person that made a difference did you have that person
1: i had so many people who mm. made small differences and a few that made big differences
0: mm. um, what, what was it they was- did can you can you bottle that
1: in general, it was that they believed in me or spoke kindly to me in moments that I needed to hear kind words. Mm. And that made all the difference. Like little things so that we crazy. do not realize make a difference.
0: I have a friend of mine. A friend of mine is a um, formerly drug addict, homeless, forever criminal, you know, many rests uh, trafficking drugs. And he's now a, a nurse, becoming a nurse practitioner, was a manager of a you know, psychiatric facility and like really a, a director of nursing. And uh, he said the same thing. Uh, he had one particular experience where somebody offered him a cigarette and it was like, that made all the difference in the world in that moment of just, it's, it's just paying attention and paying homage to that person and, and acknowledging something real about them and then offering something on behalf of that something. It's that simple, right?
1: It's so simple Yeah. for most, you know, it was so disheartening when people wouldn't make eye contact with me or they would ignore me and pretend I didn't exist. Mm. Those were the things that hurt the most. So the complete opposite is when someone paid attention and cared enough to step outside of their comfort zone and help.
0: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Of course, you know I've talked about BetterHelp for quite some time. Been very pleased with the services they provide there. I've been sent family, friends, patients. And this episode is, as I said, brought to you by BetterHelp. Give it a try. slash true. Get on your way to being your best self. Of course, I'm a big fan of therapy. I benefited from therapy myself. And I get very discouraged by people f- talking about stigma or some sort of barrier to coming in for simply taking care of their mind and Body, and it's just the craziest thing that this kind of uh, medical intervention would cause people any sense of he- hesitancy. Well, stigma is no longer a complaint with BetterHelp because there's no waiting room, there's no nothing. You're not going to run into anybody. It's all online. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. As I said, it's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, suited your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire, get matched with a licensed therapist. Switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Drew today and you will get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P slash Drew. BetterHelp.com slash Drew for 10% off your first month. Shall I take your order or do you need a minute? Yes,
2: I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah, now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What?
0: That's an exquisite deal.
2: And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next
1: car.
0: Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. Were, were you doing drugs in the street? Because it's very hard to survive out there without medicating.
1: <laughs> no, actually, um, I, I did drink some for one summer, but I had, um, a few people step in and convince me to stop because maybe I was going too far. I was definitely going too far. Mm. I was drinking a lot when I was 17. And since then, I haven't drank.
0: What was the road out? What, what sort of, can you take us through and is it too, too complex to sort of put it in a a algorithm?
1: It's somewhat complex, but, but it was two things, you know, I, at 17, I was too young to get an apartment, even though I got a job a couple of times. And so when I turned 18, I was able to get an apartment with another young person, and we shared rent. That was back when rents were like four sixty for a studio. Mm. Oh boy! Um, and then I lost that apartment, um, as many young people do. It's very hard to keep that first housing that you you obtain when you come off the streets. There's a lot of trauma you still need to work through, or resources that you still need. Um, but I was back on the streets um, because I was pregnant. I needed to quit my job at eighteen so that I could qualify for Medicaid and get prenatal mm. care.
0: Mm, got and it.
1: That pushed me back That's out. A, of the
0: think about that. How our system is so screwed up. That way. Yep.
1: It was a okay. hard decision, but I Good. was maybe five months pregnant. And I had to decide yep. that.
0: Yeah. Well, you had no choice, really. I mean, am I going to be autonomous, or am I going to take care of this pregnancy?
2: <laughs> it's exactly.
0: No choice. <laughs> exactly. So, crazy. Brilliant system. Brilliant. All right. And so you now you get on Medicaid. You have a child. Things get much easier now, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely not. But you know, it was having that child that forced me to start asking for help. I had been a kid that didn't care about my life and didn't care about my future. Uh, I had a reason to care.
2: Uh,
1: and, you know, even talking to staff now who knew me back then, they, they all knew I was the kid that didn't care about anything until I had a reason. And that baby wow. saved my life.
0: And hmm, can you tell us a little bit about what, how you got out from there? Or was it just yeah. uh, accepting, accepting resources? Did that help?
1: It's a combo of things. You know, when I was five months pregnant, I went back to a youth shelter in Hollywood that was meant for adults, but they Which weren't meant to take care of people, for, people who were pregnant. Um, Covenant House.
0: Oh, it's a great place.
1: It, it's a great place. Yeah. But at that time, they couldn't handle young people who were pregnant. And so after a few weeks, they kicked me out. Mm. But I still had to go to work at that time. I hadn't completely given up my job yet. And when I went back to work, um, I was crying. And one of the people from the coffee shop across from my job noticed and they figured out what was going on and brought me a young man who had a space in his apartment and he rented his sofa to me for a hundred a month.
2: Wow.
1: I ended up staying at his apartment for a few months until that no longer would work because he let a lot of people stay there and oh, there hasn't space for me anymore. He was just oh, a big person. Um And then I ended up, you know, staying at McDonald's. There's a 24 hour McDonald's on Hollywood Boulevard. And a lot of people would stay there at night for safety and then leave in the morning and sleep at like the drop in shelters. Mm. Um, And I stayed there for a couple months until I stayed with another friend. So it was like hopping from one place to another. And I stayed with one of my friends at the end of my pregnancy.
0: My God, you're so lucky that this didn't convert into chronic homelessness, right?
1: I'm very lucky.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm so very lucky. But after I went to the hospital to have the baby. I called my friend back who had that sofa and he let me go stay with him temporarily again. And that was the point when I had the baby where I asked for help and I got into a local program at the YWCA that had housing for young moms and went back to college.
0: So, so when you say you asked for help, uh, you know, what, what does that look like? Exactly. And does that mean you were refusing help before? Does that, is that, you know, cause if it seems like there are a lot of people that refuse resources on the street. Uh, so for
1: various a lot of their- Yeah, exactly. A lot of the resources come with, you know, requirements that might not make sense. I had gone temporarily to one of the maternity homes down in Long Beach during my pregnancy. And when I got there, I realized that they had rules that would prohibit me from really moving forward with my life. If I really wanted to, you know, go to college and support my kid, I wouldn't be able to do it in that program. Um, They had rules about how many hours you could be out, including, you know, going to your college classes and working. So I couldn't do both. And I couldn't make a substantial enough income to ever leave their program.
0: So it seems like that's more designed for drug addiction.
1: I'm not really sure what it was designed for because none of the girls there seemed like they had any habits. I I think it was more just designed for low income and maybe, you know, people they were trying to help get through life without really a plan using college as their their strategy to
0: move forward. Right. And when you go back and talk to the medical students and residents, what, what what's the sort of, uh, what, do, what do you take them through? How do, you, how do you advise them other than be kind and pay attention and do your job? Yeah.
1: Uh, for medical students, they're in a very different spot because they're all going into different fields as right. they move forward. And so I give They'll them, all see homeless people. They all will.
0: Certainly during residency, yeah.
1: Exactly. And I give them like unifying ideas and just try to empower them that, you know, it's okay to think outside the box. You know, I know that we're limited by insurance and what hospitals are able to take. But sometimes, you know, an admission that wouldn't be an admission for someone who has a house becomes an admission if they're unhoused. Like if you need them to take antibiotics or you're really worried that they won't have access to their, their medications and you need that case manager or social work assistance, sometimes you need to do a little more just to prevent harm from occurring to a patient. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I really walk them through different scenarios of patients I've had. You know with changing you know different details about the patients but enough so that they understand how important it is to really you know do what they said they were going to do in their personal statements and really reach out and help people at their time of need
0: and then the residents
1: residents um practical advice um talking to them about you know different things that they can do specifically with um you know it, it's complicated because it's different for different groups um, but
0: the, the medical side, the when people actually, yeah. the medical and psychiatric side, the ones that are actually seeing these cases hand over fist.
1: Um, just really talking about like trauma informed care specifically and how to um, use that as a way of communicating with patients instead of, you know, the way that we've always done things in medicine where it's, you know, very authoritarian.
0: Mm. I thought we were done with that. <laughs> I thought we sort of, oh. <laughs> at least in medicine and family practice and psychiatry.
1: I've I've seen that it still exists in yeah. the medical culture.
0: Interesting. Well, what else do you want people to know about this experience and what, and, you know, what do you think we should be doing uh, if you have any ideas in in response to all this?
1: What I really want people to know is, you know, when I look back at my years as a young person on the streets, except in places where it was obvious that I was experiencing homelessness, People never asked questions that would have uncovered that detail. Um, as I moved forward as an adult, no one ever asked about any histories of trauma or history of homelessness. So I've never been asked by a physician about any of wow.
0: that. Wow. Um, <laughs> That's crazy.
1: And, you know, it it might make a difference in my my overall health if you really think about the outcomes of, you know, high ACE scores. I definitely am higher risk for a lot of medical conditions and it's not something that's ever come up. And so talk about
0: that for a minute cuz I again, you know, I, I've seen the sweep of this nonsense and I was around when the ACE scores were uh, brought into consciousness mm-hmm. from Kaiser. And it was like the 90s. I mean, it's like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. What happens to you, it, it, you know, your psychiatric state, your psychological well-being affects your medical health? <gasps> oh, my goodness. It was it was the weirdest thing in the world. But now, thank God. So we're talking about these adverse childhood experiences score. And if you have more than three, you're going to have some psychiatric Ill- illness and, and symptoms. You have more than five you're going to have really some significant and let's be, you know, be super clear. It includes divorce. It includes somebody drinking in the home. It includes somebody incarcerated from the home. And These are things that we just sort of dismiss as oh, it's it's no, big, no big deal. Kids are resilient, but no, that right there is a score of three. Just those three things. And there's obviously, you know, much more serious things on the scale as well as physical abuse, sexual abuse and um, things like homelessness and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, t- talk about the A scores and, and how you use them.
1: So I, I like to give an example and it's, it's kind of a sad example, but it's looking at my ACE score and comparing it with the ACE score that I calculated for my brother mm. and, you know, trying to understand why we had differences in our trajectory and where we ended up. Um, my ACE score was a nine. That's fairly high because the highest is 10. Yeah. And you know, I went through significant trauma as a kid. Mm -hmm. And we all were in different levels of how much trauma we experienced because I was the youngest. And so he was already outside of the house when a lot of the things that happened did occur. Um, But my brother, he had a score of five and he's the one that died by suicide. Mm. And, you know, looking at that, that tells us that, you know, the ACE score alone isn't the full story. Oh, no, no. You get the resilience.
0: Yeah. Well, and also what the, what's the, what is the diagnosis that is, is, is brought out. You know, if you have depression and addiction, your prognosis is not good.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so fortunately I I have no addictions except coffee. Mm -hmm. And so I have been okay, but it really comes down to like resilience and having supportive people in your life who really, you know, give you that safety and allow you to develop into your person that you're meant to be. And I don't feel like he had that. And Mm -hmm. so I definitely touch on that when I'm talking to people about ACE scores and then, you know, I, I always talk about why it matters so much to me, because I remember when I first learned about aces, I was in residency and I had seen that wonderful TED talk um, that talked about them by Nadine Burke Harris. And as I watched that TED talk, I realized, you know, this this really isn't fair. You know, all that stuff that, you know, I survived as a teenager and I didn't die from could still kill me earlier now as an adult An estimated 20 years. Earlier yeah, than I talk should about die. that.
0: Talk about that.
1: And so, you know, that that made me think, you know, this is time to heal. I need to heal. My siblings need to heal. And all of us who are in these situations with, you know, extreme childhood trauma, it's not something to just brush past. It's time for us to collectively as a whole start working on ourselves and healing so that we can be our best selves and be healthy.
0: (sighs) It, when you, you spoke about the uh, sort of a we, there is is that we, your family, or are you recommending this for we as a country or as a community or all of the above?
1: community and yeah. country? I, I truly, truly feel that we have gone too far in the direction of you know young people having too much childhood trauma, too many scars to recover from.
0: Oh my and god, so true!
2: So much more,
0: you know. It, it, again, you didn't live through this necessarily, but it, it came from the 60s and 70s, that that's what happened. We, in the 60s and 70s, we decided, A, children are little adults and they do whatever they want. And and we had this very bizarre period. I, I watched it happen where children are sexual beings just like adults. And, you know, and if they're attracted to some older man, well, what are you going to do? as a kid? I, a child did. A child wanted that. I mean, it's just the craziest shit. And then we still live under the mantle of physical abuse being, quote, discipline, and we're not allowed to talk about that and the effects it has. I'm not saying I'm not addressing spanking. I'm not saying kids should never be spanked. I'm talking about picking up an object and hitting a kid that has profound effects on their brain and their body. And it is not discussed, and it you know that's all you know intergenerational transmission of trauma from the past in itself. You know somebody did that to them, and somebody did that in the old country, and someone did that in the south, and now three generations later, we're still doing it as though it's a good thing. What do you think about those ideas?
1: I, I absolutely agree that we have to stop um, hitting children, abusing children, and move forward as you know, a people that find other ways to discipline that don't involve, you know, bodily harm or threats or fear, you know, there definitely is some, you know, validity to the gentle parenting that is is being talked about in all the parenting groups I'm in. Um, it's definitely a move in the right direction because, you know, I see even with my own kids, they're all adults now, they're 19, 22 and 25. And, they were raised safely without being abused and they're all productive successful happy healthy young people what and they didn't need to have you know that kind of discipline to get to where they are mm.
2: This is Watkins. Welcome with Bridget Fettesy. I love hearing people's stories of resilience and grit. This is why I created this podcast. We are very excited to welcome Jim Gaffigan, Yasmin Mohammed, Glenn Beck, Tim Dillon, Abigail Schreier, Jeff Garland, Ayan Hirsi Ali, Sam Harris, Heather Hying, Jonah Goldberg, Ben Shapiro, Glenn Greenwald, Sarah Shahi, Colin Quinn. If there's a culture of victimhood, then let's tell stories of grit and survival subscribe and listen now on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts shall i take your order or do you need a minute yes i'll be ready just buying a car on Carvana. what it's super convenient i already got pre-qualified in two minutes all i had to do was answer a few questions what that's handy yeah now i'm customizing my down and monthly payments what
0: that's an exquisite deal
2: And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah.
0: Uh, Sorry, I'll
1: have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit
0: approval. Delivery fees may apply. and the the one child the first child that was um uh, born into homelessness did yes. that affect her at all did you have to or did you quickly resolve all that once you had a baby um,
1: we moved in um into the the young mothers program when i was about i was still 19 and she was about 4 months old and then after that i reconnected with her dad and we ended up moving in together and getting our first apartment together when she was about eight months old and so we did some rapid you know reconnecting and trying to see if we would work as a family unit and fortunately it worked out it's just we both had our own trauma to deal with and so mm-hmm. we both came from very different backgrounds with you know extensive trauma and mm-hmm. you know it's, it's like what you see on the a scale trauma meets trauma a lot of people who've been traumatized end up partnering with someone with equal amounts of trauma
0: of course and 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 that has very various flavors to it <laughs> sometimes you know we don't talk about that also which is the impact it's it's a more sort of um, vague topic but the impact that childhood trauma has on our attractions our attractions to people and circumstances that are you, you know people the psychologists will go it's an attempt to master and resolve what happened to you I don't believe it. I think it's just a, a thing that gets wired in. It's repetition compulsion. And I don't know why we evolved with that mechanism in our brain, but we did. And these, these, we repeat the traumas of the past. We just do, uh, particularly when it's abandonment and abuse. And we are attracted to I mean, overwhelmingly, lightning bolt attracted to people that we, in our, in our conscious brain, go, well, at least it's not one of those people again. I'm going to never go with somebody like that. And Of course, because you're attracted, and your body's a perfect instrument, you end up recreating the past. You, 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 you're, that person obliges you. Even they don't look like dad. They will eventually do the same thing dad did, or whatever, whatever parent or whatever.
1: I will say, my husband is nothing like my dad.
0: No, I know that's what I said. <laughs> uh, you're, so it's a, that's an incredible piece of your story is that you you managed. Not, but I think that that probably is because you were already on your sort of healing way. You know, you really aggressively went after it once you started, right? I think so. Sorry. And, and healing stops the changes, the attractions. It just does. And, and the repetition quickly settles. And and we're not honest about that either. We never tell people about, you know, Hey, look, if you had that kind of heritage and look at these two guys, you were, you know, you're 17, 18, each time those guys abandoned or they're alcoholics or they're sociopaths, whatever. Hmm. I wonder if that has something to do with, you know, what, what you were exposed to course it does of course how do you find the reception by our peers of what you what you have to offer now
1: for the most part it's been very um, positive mm. and you know very kind I, i've had quite a few colleagues who have read my work and let me know that it's changed the way that they interact not only with patients but the way that they have decided that they're going to focus on their medical career I, i've had a few people who have gone back and learned more about trauma-informed care And one of my favorite nurses who read it when she retired, she moved to a community where she could work at a homeless youth program.
0: Wow. That's exciting.
1: That
2: was cool.
0: Yeah, that is cool. Uh it's so interesting to me that they don't know it. (laughs) They don't know that it's already not sort of a major piece of the training. You know what I mean? It's
1: not on step one. (laughs) What's that? It's not on step one.
0: Yeah. 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 I guess. It's just—it's so pervasive. It's so much. Well, you know, some of it may be that so many of our peers have similar heritages. I'm, I'm you know, I'm sure you're finding that. You know, that you'll. And then if you have, if they, if they come out of that with a narcissistic character structure, they don't want to do any feeling. You know, they don't want to. You know, have any connection to these experiences, and they, their whole their whole being is is designed, built around avoiding it all. So there, there's a lot of that out there too. It is sort of wrapping up. What what are the, what did I miss here? Is there other things that we should be talking about or you should be uh, urging people to look at?
1: Yeah. I think the only way moving forward, if we specifically focus on homelessness is, you know, we're looking at numbers and we just had our Los Angeles youth count and not, Los Angeles youth count as well as the Los Angeles homeless count published with incredibly increased numbers of people who are on the streets yeah, um, in the high 50,000s. Yeah you know, we've spent a lot of money on an issue without solving a problem. We keep throwing money at, you know, programs, which is important. We need to have food. We need to have resources. We need to have showers. We need to have medical care. But we keep doing all of these programs without offering housing to everyone. The one thing that would make a difference, we don't do it time and time again, year after year. You know, the answer to homelessness is housing, housing with support, you know people who have you know struggled on the streets they live in trauma 24 hours a day it's not just one trauma but it's chronic occurring trauma yeah. for whatever amount of time they're out there so right. you know my biggest push is we need housing
0: but you you said it has to have supportive care also absolutely okay the notion of supportive care isn't was invented in a psychiatric hospital okay so we're talking about comprehensive psychiatric services i don't know why we mince words on this that is what is needed full specific to the diagnosis of the individual that you're housing comprehensive physician psychologist chemical dependency counselor whatever it might be you have to do full services and we seem to refuse to allow psychiatric teams to do any work with those folks. That's the part. I I don't know how we ever get moved forward without what we've always done, which is provide care. And what, by the way, every other country in the world does, they take care of, and some States do, by the way, some States do it. And guess what? Their outcomes are much better, but we, we are prevented from asking anybody to do anything here. And, That's killing people. It's literally murder, in my opinion. Uh, And and again, it's back to what I was saying earlier about no physicians involved, no psychiatrist. Is there a psychiatrist anywhere in the system, anywhere that sees any of these patients? It's the weirdest, weirdest thing of all time. Do you agree?
1: For the most part, because the only one I've found that has great psychiatry input into... Um, taking care of patients on the streets is a program out in Hawaii called I think it's Project Hope
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: where they actually have psychiatrists going out as a street crisis team. Yes. And they helped a lot of patients. Yeah, well
0: that's that's what you're you're actually making my point for me. I I'm, I exactly. I the frustration I have is with LA LA County in California. Oh, I agree. That's it's in my face all the time.
2: If when I go to New York, Ill, New
0: York, you know, New York has as a law where you're required to house people. They they have a uh right to housing. And when you do that, and the weather helps them too because that pushes people into the housing, they provide services there, and guess what? people find their way out they get get better uh it's just it's just I don't know what's wrong with this here I, I don't, I don't get it, but we, we seem recalcitrant we see i I worry that there's such a we throw so much money at it that there are people in, that are getting wealthy or at least their jobs are dependent on this way they do it now, and so it's becoming ossified.
2: I agree.
0: That's awful. Well, uh, are you planning a, like a uh any kind of uh, TED Talk or anything yourself? Or do you have I a-
1: would love to give one. I've written one. I haven't applied for it yet, but that's something Please that's do it. We mind. got
0: we got to, you know, get you and the end your book. And we got to push that out there again. The book is
1: Um, "Hindsight: Coming of Age on the Streets of Hollywood."
0: Yeah, I think people need to understand more deeply what's going on and it, it, it is, and it, the homelessness is really just the present manifestation of what we've been through, which is this incredible pandemic of childhood abuse. You know, I was looking at um, probability of death from opioid addiction, percentage of de- deaths from opioid addiction in eight, 20 to twenty nine year olds. Right, it's twenty percent of deaths in that age group are opioid deaths right now. Twenty percent. Uh, 0.000015% are COVID deaths. What are we doing? What are we doing? Overwhelmingly focused in this infectious disease direction when this other condition, these these other conditions are what are actually killing young people. It's, I, I just, it's mind boggling to me. You have thoughts?
1: I think we need to focus on both, you know, I'm a hospitalist. I've seen way too much loss and even in my own family from COVID. And so 20 to
0: 29 has, year olds.
1: I've unfortunately had, you know, some very poor outcomes with 20 to 29 year olds, but. No, non-drug
0: addict, non-drug addict, non-obese. Non-drug addict. Not, obese?
1: not the only poor outcome. And, you know, it's heartbreaking to me when I have young people who feel responsible for the deaths of their elders, because they're the one that brought the COVID infection into the household. Mm-hmm. And so if they have it and it, it kills mom or kills grandpa, then that changes that family forever. And it's it's definitely something we need to remember.
0: Right. So we should have been outside, out of doors, not locked in a room with people that bring it home. The, it, most of the transmission occurred in the house. I, I don't know the wisdom of, of that, particularly when that's the environment where the transmission occurred. Doesn't make sense. I think we need we need a lot more objective study of, of what we did and what we did right and what we did wrong. Seems to me, so humbly. All right, well listen, uh website or anything like that that you would like to send people to?
1: Um yes, it's Com. That's S H E R Y L R E C I N O S M D.com.
0: And Cheryl's with an S pay attention to that. I'm yeah. and
1: I promise I'll update it.
0: <laughs> Good. Well, thank you so amazing. much for spending time with us. Thank you for the work. Thank you for the book. Don't don't let up, right? Thank it, you so much. It is time. It is. It's. Uh, it's. It's. It's killing way too many people in my humble opinion, for no good reason. We, we have we have ways to manage this, and we should. All right, Cheryl Racinas, everybody, and uh, get Cheryl Racinas, MD.com, and I will see everyone next time. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com.